If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Sephora, and Nike. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. I'm Margaret Brennan, and today on Face the Nation, the world watches in horror as Vladimir Putin continues his rampage through Ukraine. What will it take to stop Russia's aggression? We'll have the latest from Kyiv, the capital city under siege, plus reports on the hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians desperate to escape the violence. We'll talk with Ambassador to the United Nations Linda Thomas-Greenfield, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, and former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster. We'll also look at potential financial fallout from the crisis with the president of the World Bank, David Malpass, and explore how a crisis 5,000 miles away is impacting Americans. Plus, we'll talk about President Biden's historic Supreme Court pick with South Carolina Congressman James Clyburn. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. morning and welcome to Face the Nation. The reality of a European capital city being bombed by Russia as the war in Ukraine rages is still hard to fathom. The situation is getting more dire by the hour as the Russian military news surrounding most of Ukraine tightens. But Ukrainians are literally fighting in the streets to defend the key cities of Kyiv and Kharkiv. If there's any good news, it's the overwhelming international show of support for Ukraine and President Volodymyr Zelensky. In the past 24 hours, the U.S. and allies ratcheted up financial pressure on Putin with massive sanctions. And in return for those tougher sanctions, Putin has put his nuclear deterrence forces on high alert. CBS's David Martin is here for more on that. But first, we begin with Charlie Daggett in Kyiv. Charlie? Good morning, Margaret. The Ukrainian president has accused Russia of intentionally targeting civilian areas in another night of artillery and airstrikes here in the capital. But Russian troops have run into fierce resistance as Ukrainian forces hold ground, and no major city has been captured. The Russian military expanded its aerial onslaught overnight, taking aim at oil and gas facilities in a wave of attacks. In Ukraine's second city of Kharkiv, street battles are underway as Ukrainian soldiers and civilians struggle to keep control of the city. In Kyiv, a missile tears through an apartment block where we found dazed and displaced residents dragging belongings away. This is some of the debris and rubble that rained down from this apartment block after a missile strike. The Russian military says this is not one of ours, instead blaming Ukrainian air defenses for going off target. 
Many have sought shelter deep underground in the city's subway network. Angelina moved here from Crimea after the Russian military invaded there in 2014. You don't know what to do. You're just scared and that's all. But uh, now I know what to do. The government has called on men 18 to 60 to step up and fight, handing out around 18,000 weapons. They don't want us revealing this location because they don't want it to be a target for the Russian military. But we have seen a steady stream of volunteers. The commander told us it's not hundreds, but thousands, very few with any military experience, every single one of them ready to fight. Ukraine's soldiers and reservists now man checkpoints in the city streets on the hunt for plainclothes Russian saboteurs trying to infiltrate the capital. Now, explosions have continued overnight and really throughout the day here. To give you an idea of how tense it is, the mayor has ordered everyone off the streets until at least tomorrow at 8 a.m., saying anyone caught outside will be considered an enemy. Margaret? Charlie Daggett, stay safe. The United Nations estimates that up to 5 million Ukrainians may flee to neighboring countries. Christina Rafini has been following refugees crossing that border into Poland. Here's her report. We say, help, 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 because we're here. We're here. So we're alone here. For Ukrainians trying to leave, there are no more good options. This train from Lviv to Poland was overrun by panicked passengers. And on the road, it's mostly women and children dragging what they can carry past gridlock cars. Military-aged men aren't allowed to leave. The cold walk to Poland can take more than 20 hours. But once they cross, aid agencies offer warm soup, free rides, and even fresh shoes for tired, worn-out souls. More than 100,000 Ukrainians have now fled to Poland. 25,000 nearby Romania. We are afraid. My husband is still there. Uh, We'll fight, even if Europe doesn't help us. And 10,000 to Slovakia, where the government is offering financial aid to anyone who shelters refugees. 25-year-old volunteer Aksania is a Ukrainian living in Poland. She says if NATO and the U.S. don't do more to stop Russian President Vladimir Putin... Other countries could be next. This guy doesn't care about Sancho. And now Ukrainians are fighting for all of us. My country is dying for all of us. Now, despite the exodus, we've actually seen intermittent lines going back into Ukraine. Many of the people in those lines are young Ukrainian men from all over Europe. They told us they're going back home to join the fight. Margaret? Christina Ruffini, thank you. And national security correspondent David Martin is here now with more on the troop movements in Ukraine. David, the reporting is that the Ukrainian resistance is putting up a fierce fight and that Russia isn't moving as quickly as they had thought they would. Well, it seems to be true. Uh, The Russians have basically bogged down. Uh, They are uh, still about 20 miles from the capital of Kyiv, and they are starting, starting to experience shortages of fuel, shortages of ammunition, and it's turning into a siege. And in fact, they are starting to use rockets, which are much less precise than than missiles, using rockets to bombard the city. So uh, the fact that the Russians have bogged down may be um, good news for the defense of Ukraine, but it's bad news for the citizens of Kyiv because it puts them 
in even um, greater danger of, of being harmed. Russia has now committed about two-thirds of those 150,000 troops that had massed around the wow. border, 100,000 troops. And it has not been able to take a single major city. But you have to look at it and say they've still got 50,000 there on the border ready to commit and lots more troops back in Mother Russia. So uh, they're, they may be suffering an embarrassment of arms, but I think most people still expect a breakthrough will come. Vladimir Putin is known for having a very heavy hand. So how do we understand what he said this morning on TV when he said he was increasing the nuclear deterrence readiness level? That sounds like a threat to the West. Well, you know, he started before the invasion uh, threatening. He, he said anybody who tries to interfere will suffer consequences like they've never seen before in history. He didn't say nuclear, but that's, that's what he was talking about. Now he's putting his troops or says he's putting his troops or his nuclear forces on higher alert. And this is clearly an effort to sort of shock the rest of the world into realizing how important Ukraine is to him and the, what he is willing to do to take Ukraine. And the Pentagon war games stuff like this, uh, a Russian invasion of a country in Europe bogs down, the U.S. and NATO starts to come to their defense, Russia sets off a small, low-yield nuclear weapon just to shock everybody into staying in place and stepping back for a moment and considering what's going on here. I don't want to scare people with the thought that Russia is somehow getting prepared to launch nuclear missiles mm -hmm. at the U.S. I don't think that is likely. But the problem is, if just one low-yield nuclear weapon goes off, even if he just does a demonstration shot out in Siberia. There's just no experience for, for what happens next. Mm -hmm. So it is a dangerous moment, not just for Ukraine, but for the world. A very dangerous moment. Thank you very much, David, for giving us the bottom line on that. We go now to the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who joins us from New York. Good morning to you, Madam Ambassador. Vladimir Putin has been speaking on state TV with his top officials and said he was ordering Russia's nuclear deterrent forces to be on alert for a special regime of combat duty. Can you tell us what that means? It means that President Putin is continuing to escalate this war in a manner that is totally unacceptable. And we have to continue to condemn his actions in the most uh, strong, the strongest possible way. But to be clear, is this just loose talk about nuclear weapons or is there some kind of heightened readiness and reason to be concerned? Uh, I'm just hearing this from, from you, Margaret, but I'm not surprised. Uh, at this uh, at this information, because Putin has uh, tried every means possible uh, to uh, actually put fear 
in, uh, in the world in terms of his action. And it just means that we have to ramp up uh, our efforts here at the United Nations and elsewhere to hold him accountable. This morning, uh, the United Kingdom's foreign minister said the conflict will get very, very bloody. Uh, and she raised the prospect of unsavory weapons. I know Ukraine has also raised concerns about uh, Russia handing out gas masks in the eastern part of the country. Is there a threat of chemical and biological weapons being used? Certainly uh, nothing is off the table with this guy. He's willing to use whatever tools he can to uh, intimidate Ukrainians and, and the world. And again, we have to continue, as the president has indicated, to hold him accountable. And that is exactly what uh, we're doing here in New York. Well, let me ask you about the Biden administration's strategy here, because sanctions have really been at the heart of the policy but we've seen an evolution in explaining their purpose. Uh, take a listen. The president believes that sanctions are intended to deter. The purpose of the sanctions has always been and continues to be deterrence. Once you trigger the sanctions, you lose the deterrent effect. No one expected the sanctions to prevent anything from happening. If the sanctions weren't meant to prevent anything from happening, then what was the purpose? Look, we always had a two-pronged approach to this. The president indicated that nothing was off the table. So while we were using well, sanctions, he said U.S. force was off the table. The Russian. I'm sorry. He did say U.S. force, U.S. combat he, troops were off the table. Uh, U.S. combat troops in Ukraine are off the table, but U.S. troops in our NATO countries bolstering our support for NATO has never been taken off the table. And as you know, the president has approved additional troops uh, to support NATO. But on the issue of sanctions, which have been the prime tool here, and they've ramped up tremendously over the past 72 to 48 hours, um, the president said earlier in the week, we'd have to wait a month to see what the impact would be. Do you think Ukrainians have a month to wait and see? We're, uh, we're continuing to support Ukraine, not just with the sanctions that we have imposed on, on the Russians. There is other support that is going to the Ukrainian government and other pressure that is being put on Russia across the world. But can the government in Kyiv hold on for a month? We're working to support the government as much as, as possible. And the president of, uh, of, of Ukraine has indicated that they're going to be fighting back uh, constantly. And uh, it is our plan to support their efforts. Madam Ambassador, there was already a refugee crisis in Eastern Europe, and now we have about 400,000 refugees spilling into the surrounding countries. It is wonderful to see them welcomed. But there seems to be a contradiction here, because if you look at the border of Poland, as you know, there are detention camps for some refugees who had come from Syria, from Afghanistan, from other countries. And it appears as if some refugees are treated differently based on their country of origin, if they're European or not. How do you explain that? The Polish government and other governments have indicated that they're opening their borders for all who are crossing from uh, Ukraine. But we're also engaging very, very closely with these governments. We're engaging closely with the UN agencies on the ground to ensure that we provide them with the 
uh, resources that they need and and uh, the support that they need to uh, ensure that every single refugee crossing into neighboring countries are received uh, equally and with the uh, same amount of, uh, of protection. You know, I'm talking about Poland building a wall against the border with Belarus to block refugees in the past. Um, Madam Ambassador, I mean, big picture here. It, I, I understand your role at the United Nations, but it is just the entire purpose of the U.N., to prevent something like this from ever happening again. It's why it was created after World War II in, in the first place. Isn't what's happening now, though, showing that that global order is failing the people of Ukraine? What is happening now is that the Russian government has, has shown its disrespect for the U.N. Charter and for all of the principles that we believe in, and they are isolated. Uh, uh, in that approach. They're isolated here in the United Nations. We are pushing uh, here at the UN to continue to call out their aggressive actions. We will continue to isolate them and to push for uh, them to respect the, the charter and cease this aggressive action against Ukraine. Madam Ambassador, thank you for your time this morning. Face the Nation will be back in a minute, so please stay with us. June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We go now to Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming, who joins us from Casper. Good morning to you, Congresswoman. Good morning, Margaret. Good to be with you. Have we reached the limit of what is possible to do here with sanctions? Or is there something more you think would make a difference? Oh, we certainly haven't reached the limit. I think that we have seen impressive progress. I think the fact that we've had um, the European countries uh, uh, and NATO uh, united with the United States as we go forward is a very positive thing. I do think we need to do more. Uh, I would like to see us move with respect to the Russian Central Bank completely. I'd like to see uh, swift sanctions that don't leave any carve-outs. Uh, I'd like to see uh, the oil industry uh, affected. I'd like to see uh, very clear that, uh, you know, the United States ought to be looking at ourselves, frankly, uh, as an arsenal of energy for the world in the way that in World War II we were an arsenal of democracy. We ought to be an arsenal of energy. So we ought to be unleashing our own uh, energy resources, our own energy production. We ought to stop the imports of Russian oil to the United States. Uh, so there's, there's certainly more we can do. We ought to be sanctioning not just Putin, not just Lavrov, not just the oligarchs, but all of their families. 
uh, the, this, this behavior, this aggression uh, against Ukraine is something that, that the, uh, uh, the, the world simply cannot tolerate. So the sanctions uh, ought to go further. Uh, as I said, we've made good progress so far. Mm-hmm. But do you agree with President Biden's strategy here that uh, rather than go nose to nose with the Russian military, U.S. force should be completely off the table and that it should all be dependent on sanctions? I think there are several things we need to be doing. We need to certainly be increasing the sanctions, as I've said. And I, I would have sequenced the sanctions differently. I would have done more uh, early on. I think we need to make sure that we're rushing uh, additional uh, Javelin and Stinger missiles uh, to the Ukrainians. I think we need to make sure that we get the supplemental assistance uh, package that should be on the floor of the House this week. We need to get that moving. Uh, We need to make sure that we are moving to deploy forces as we are in Eastern Europe. Uh, We need to make sure that we're continuing to encourage our allies to do the same. Uh, So I think there are a number of things we need to be doing that uh, make very clear that the United States stands with Ukraine. And Mm -hmm. um, as as you look at things like Vladimir Putin's threat, for example, this morning about his nuclear forces, you know, that's something that we need to take seriously. But we also need to be clear that we're not going to be intimidated. And uh, one of the, uh, our former U.S. ambassadors to Ukraine, uh, John Herbst, has pointed out that it cost Putin nothing to make that threat, but it would cost him everything were he to follow through, uh, certainly with any, any use of nuclear force. So the United States has got to be absolutely clear about that. I want to ask you about uh, where the conservative movement is these days with Russia. Um, J.D. Vance, an Ohio candidate for Senate, said on a podcast recently, I don't really care what happens to Ukraine one way or the other. Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri told CBS the U.S. should not send troops to any NATO country since the U.S. can't afford it. So there is this non-interventionist, isolationist movement that President Trump himself really uh, endorsed with America First. I mean, how do you explain to voters why that view, Republican view, is wrong? Look, we've, we've been down that road before. We've seen isolationism in both parties, and it's always been wrong, and it's always been dangerous. America cannot defend and maintain our own freedom and security uh, if we think that we're going to simply withdraw from the world and not lead. You know, we are watching today the brutality of Vladimir Putin uh, as he attempts to invade a democratic, uh, sovereign nation. And anyone who thinks that U.S. freedom and security is going to be maintained if we take a step back and don't lead you simply need to look at what's happening in Ukraine to recognize uh, that, that those who fill the void when the U.S. steps away uh, are people like the Russians, like the Chinese, like the Iranians. Uh, and so the idea that, that the world will be safe and that America will be able to be safe and free uh, with an isolationist approach is wrong. It's also wrong morally. You know, America stands for freedom. America was founded on fundamental principles of freedom. And, and I think it's, uh, it's indefensible for people to abandon those or suggest that we, are, uh, we have no, no view as between Russia and Ukraine in this battle. The first, first impeachment trial of President Trump um, was triggered from a complaint by a U.S. intelligence official who said that the president was withholding aid or threatening to, to Ukraine, to President Zelensky, in order to win political favors. Um, do you regret your no vote then? Do you view... What happened then differently now? I don't regret my vote. I think any impeachment vote has got to be one that is based very clearly on, uh, on the evidence. And I think that we certainly have learned a lot from that first impeachment trial that we are using as we move forward in the January 6th committee. 
Uh, I think that it's very important. You, you'll see with the January 6th committee, we have a very uh, aggressive litigation strategy. Uh, and I think that there were a number of instances in the first impeachment where it would have been important and decisive to have witnesses testify who did not come in and testify. We did not enforce those subpoenas. Uh, I think, though, it's very clear if you, if you look at uh, some of the challenges that we're dealing with now, President Trump spent a large part of his presidency, for example, attacking NATO, saying that NATO was obsolete, uh, attacking our allies. Uh, and we are certainly seeing today how crucially important NATO is, uh, how crucially important our allies are. I was very pleased to see that Germany has announced that they will be raising their defense spending uh, mm -hmm. to 2%. Uh, one thing that President Trump got right was increased uh, spending for the military. And it's very important for us, especially as we look at the challenges now, as we look at Putin's uh, nuclear threat, uh, we cannot uh, adopt policies like a no first use nuclear policy. We can't accept defense spending yeah. that is insufficient to defend our interests. We have to make sure that, that we are recognizing here at home what's, what's important and necessary to defend ourselves. Well, I think that picture looks a lot different now that we see a city being bombed by Russia. Um, we're going to talk about some of that ahead with H.R. McMaster. Thank you so much, Liz Cheney, for joining us. We'll be right back. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great tasting dairy, You'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great tasting, high-quality organic dairy ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Two years ago, South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn urged President Biden to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. Last week, the president fulfilled that promise and picked Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Congressman Clyburn joins us now from Santee, South Carolina. Good morning to you, Congressman. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. You know, how important is it for President Biden to have this vote for this particular historic choice be bipartisan. This is beyond politics. This is about the country, our pursuit of a more perfect union, and this is demonstrative of another step in that pursuit. And I would hope that all of my Republican friends will look upon it that way. Let's have a debate. Let's talk to her uh, about her rulings and about her philosophy. But in the final analysis, let's have a strong bipartisan support to demonstrate that both parties are still in pursuit of perfection. Congressman, you spoke very passionately the last time you were on this program about your first choice, the South Carolina native, Judge Michelle Childs. Um, and one of the reasons you argued it was important to have someone like her, you said, was because she went to state schools. Judge Brown-Jackson went to Harvard, an elite institution. Does that affect how you see this? Is it less powerful? 
because of that? It's more traditional. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, this means that um, we will continue that tradition. Uh, and I uh, am one, as you can see, uh, that's not so much for tradition. Uh, I want to see us break as much new ground as possible. But having said that, we all have our personal preferences. We all have our reasonable biases. But in the final analysis, I think this was a good choice. Uh, it was a choice uh, that uh, brings onto the court a background and some experiences that nobody else on the court uh, will have. And I think when you look at not just uh, her uh, background and the uh, family life, but also her profession, she was a public defender. That adds a new perspective uh, to the court. Congressman, uh, the president will deliver his State of the Union address this coming week, and we know that his approval ratings have fallen uh, among virtually every group over the past year. But according to our CBS polling, the drop has been especially steep among black Americans, um, down from 87 percent to 66 percent approval. And it's inflation time and again that shows up over every single group as one of the biggest things weighing on the president. Well, inflation is a problem for everybody. But the fact of the matter is, it is more of a problem for those people who have very little or nothing to inflate. And so the president has a job here of uh, trying to do what is necessary to get people back to work, to get incomes in people's homes, uh, to get people in homes. All of this uh, adds to his problem. And so when you have uh, a group such as African-Americans uh, that had little in the first place. Inflation comes. It, it depresses uh, their family incomes even more. So that is a concern. It's also a concern, as I said earlier, uh, when you have an opportunity uh, to make the, an appointment like you just had and he made an African-American appointment, I guarantee you, you see some of that move up. Mm -hmm. It may not move up with the people who are having income problems, but it will move up to those uh, who have other reservations uh, about the president. Congressman, two prominent Democrats came out this week with some uh, words of advice to the Democratic Party, Michael Bloomberg and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and both said that Democrats need a course correction. Uh, Bloomberg said parties headed for a wipeout in November up and down the ballot because it's distracted. Voters perceive the party too focused on culture wars. Secretary Clinton also said we can't get distracted, whether it's the latest culture war nonsense or some new right wing lie on Fox or Facebook. Do you agree that these things are problems? Well, culture wars are a problem, but it's not coming from the Democrats. But the focus and, uh, by Democrats exactly on that. Well, I don't think any of us are focused on that, but we cannot allow these kinds of things to float around out there. When you're talking about critical uh, race theory, uh, we aren't putting that out there, but you can't stand idly by and allow that to exist. This is, we have a critical race problem in this country, and we know it, and we got to stand up to it. We can't let people just take black history out of the school's agenda uh, and call it a theory. These are racial facts. It is just important to me, for my grandchildren, to learn about Louis Latimer as it is to learn about Thomas Edison. But for Louis Latimer, 
Thomas Edison's light bulb would never have worked. And those are facts that should stay in our classrooms. And when people are taking books of black authors out of the schools, that to me cannot be allowed to stand unchallenged. Congressman Clyburn, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you very much for having me. We now return to the war raging in Ukraine with former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster. He's now at the Hoover Institution at Stanford and with us this morning. Good to see you in person. Hey, good to see you, Margaret. So uh, the president has made clear he does not want to put the United States in a position of going head to head with Russia. You have Ukraine's president begging for a no-fly zone, for some kind of military intervention. Is there any military option short of going to World War III here? Well, there is, and that's continued support for the Ukrainians to defend themselves, and they're doing a tremendous job, obviously. But as you mentioned, just in, in the question, the problem is Russia's control of the air, right? It's very difficult to reposition forces, to meet these this multiple-pronged offensive with what you call interior lines, the ability to move across to one and defeat them in detail, which is what you would want to do uh, when, when, when the Russians control the air. And then also the sea as well. So I think there's probably a military option there to tell the, the Russians, hey, you don't own the Black Sea. And then also, I think, to open up commercial traffic again, to alleviate humanitarian suffering in Ukraine, as well as to keep open the, the land routes coming out of Poland, Moldova and, and Romania to, to resupply, I think, the uh, the Ukrainians uh, with, with weapons. And I think that's that's very important as well. I think I think Putin got a lot more than he bargained for. He's in a very difficult position. And I think anything we can do, obviously, financially, mm-hmm. going after his international criminal enterprise with sanctions and so forth is important. But the support for Ukraine's ability to defend themselves is also important. Does that mean when Kyiv falls, the United States should fund an arm and insurgency and kind of a Cold War style proxy battle? Well, I, I think the Ukrainians are, are going to fight. And I think what what Putin didn't understand, this isn't an autocratic regime like his, right, where it, it's uh, it's conducive to decapitation. The Ukrainian people are fighting for their freedom. They're fighting for democracy. They're fighting for one another and their sovereignty. And that just doesn't go away if he's able to seize Kiev. And I don't think I don't think seizing Kiev is, is in the cards in the immediate future. The next 72 no. hours, I think, are going to be really critical. I think what you have to look at, is on the, when you look at the map, it's important to look at the scale, Margaret. You know, and, and it's, it's really easy to look good crossing the border at the beginning of an offensive. But you begin to reach the culminating point where you run out of logistics supplies and your force gets more diffuse. And then your supply lines are open to interdiction. And so, and so I, I think this multi-pronged attack that you show on the graphic, you know, it looks good on the map, on, on a chart, but it's actually quite difficult to execute. We heard our own David Martin lay out why that may sound reassuring, but is also actually scary for civilians because Russia may use less precise weapons. We have seen what Vladimir Putin is willing to do in Syria. He backs a war criminal who used chemical weapons. You heard the UN ambassador say that's not off the table. He's threatening to uh, potentially lean into nuclear by saying he's raising his threat level. Right. Is Vladimir Putin a rational actor at this point? I, I don't think he's, he's a rational actor because he's fearful, right? What he wants to do more than anything is restore Russia to national greatness. He's driven by that. He's also driven by a desire to remain in power to at least 2036. And, and so he, I think now he knows that all of that is at risk, right? That Russia, the Russian military doesn't look very good right now. He doesn't look very powerful. And this is going to jeopardize his ability to stay in power. You know, real wages in Russia. Do you really Russia, think that? I really think that, Margaret. Yeah, I, you Why know, do you think that there's actually a, a, a real threat to him staying in power? I mean, he humiliated his intelligence director on television. Yep. 
Well, that's, that's a sign, isn't it? I think that's a sign. When he, when he had to humiliate his intelligence director on television, what does that mean? It means everybody around him is telling him what he wants to hear. He's living in so a bubble. So who could stand up to him? Well, I think the Russian people could stand up to him. Now, the problem is that any, any of these, you know, the, the protests that we see, they're immediately put down. But it's worth noting, Margaret, you know, there are more people in Russia's internal security service than there are in the Russian military at this moment. What does that tell you about how secure he is? There are more political prisoners in Russia than there were during the height of the Cold War. What does that tell you about how secure he is? So I think these totalitarian leaders, they can look, you know, they can look strong, but they're actually very brittle. And, you know, democracy, as we've been you know, self-flagellating for, for the last several years, I mean, as ugly as democracy is, democracies are actually pretty darn resilient. And you mm-hmm. see that with the Ukrainians. And I hope the Ukrainians inspire confidence in all of us uh, across the free world. You know, I think a lot of people like to hear the optimism here. And it's kind of refreshing to hear in that way. But then you look at the international system. You served in the Trump administration. There's a lot of criticism of the international system. And parts of it, while it may be revitalized, it does look a little bit creaky. I mean, Russia is baked into the U.N. Security Council charter. They are vetoing moral outrage. They have a vote in this. They can use the international system to their advantage. So... Doesn't that well, it's, it's, <laughs> fundamentally it's, it's, cause a problem? Hey, I mean, freedom's not easy, right? I mean, and so we have, to, we have to work hard, I think, to maintain the international order that has benefited people across the world. And it's at risk now because obviously what Russia is doing. But how about this, the relationship with Russia and China, how they're aiding and abetting one another? I think it's really important to look at that at the, you know, at the, uh, uh, the joint statement that was made just before the Olympics and, mm-hmm. and the call for a new type of international relations. You know what that means, Margaret? That means rewriting the rules in a way that cuts against our interests and benefits the, the two authoritarian regimes that are trying to dominate the Eurasian landmass. So do you, how do you interpret Xi Jinping, the president of China's call to Vladimir Putin to urge him to negotiate a settlement? Does that say he thinks maybe this is going too far? And is Xi Jinping the only person who can rein in Putin? He's not going to rein in Putin. And what he's, what he's doing, I think, is, is creating the facade of maybe being an advocate for peace, just like he's, he's always been, remember... Because the White you know, House would say, oh, look, China's afraid of secondary sanctions. Even yeah. China is now afraid of the world standing up to Russia. You well, they might be afraid of secondary way. sanctions, and they might, they might get them. I think they deserve them, actually, for aiding and abetting Russia. What, what Russia and, and uh, David uh, Malpass will be able to talk more about this than I, than I can. But they've been trying to insulate themselves, right, from, from economic sanctions, and, and they're doing it in cooperation with one another, right? He's trying to, trying to reduce his vulnerability to, to restrictions on on his access to the dollar economy by buying yuan. Uh, China has, has pledged to buy even more and more oil and gas from Putin. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what we have to do next, we have to figure this out, Margaret, is we have to sanction the hydrocarbon sector. I mean, we have to do it. We have to do everything we can maybe to, to buffer the effect of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I think Europe, Germany in particular, has to realize they made a big, big mistake when they gave Russia coercive power over their economy. And so we have to make major adjustments Uh, to to the energy infrastructure globally. So I spoke to Kurt Volker, former envoy to uh, Ukraine. He said to me, when you have a balance of forces, you have strength. Both sides have a reason to settle through diplomacy. When it's only one side imposing its will by force, diplomacy is capitulation. That's absolutely right. So should Vladimir Zelensky do anything to negotiate at this point? 
Well, I don't think he has to. I, I think, again, this next 72 hours are going to be really important. Russia's initial aims have been frustrated. The, 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 the military problem gets harder and harder for them uh, as they extend their lines of communication and supply lines. If you look at the numbers of forces, you know, it looks like a lot, you know, 160,000. Okay, what, about one-third of that is combat troops. Now you divide it across four different axes, you know, it's pretty easy, easy for that force to become dissipated and to become absorbed in the vast territory of Ukraine, you know, a country of 40 million people that occupies the space of Texas, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I think that this is an impossible military problem for him if his aim is to not only remove you know, Zelensky from power, but then to control mm-hmm. Ukraine. He okay. won't be able to control Ukraine. Thank you very much, H.R. McMaster. We'll be back in a moment. Thanks, Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. For more on the potential global financial impact of the war in Ukraine, we turn to the president of the World Bank, David Malpass. Good morning to you. So much has happened in the past few days with even bigger sanctions on Russia. Tomorrow morning, when they wake up in Moscow, do you expect to see a run on banks? Hi, Margaret. We haven't seen the details of the sanctions, but they also yesterday talked uh, about and announced that they would be hitting the central bank of Russia. Mm -hmm. So one thing to watch is the ruble. Uh, That really affects the Russian people. They've been having a hard time. You know, this is a tragedy right now for Ukrainians, for the neighbors of Ukraine, but also for Russians. Uh, Their their per capita income has fallen below China's. Uh, So as you think about the sanctions, it it hits the the banks in Russia, but apparently not the oil and gas industry. Mm-hmm. But if they go, if they're able to stop the central bank of Russia from operating, that would really have an effect on Russia and the people. We'll see what happens tomorrow. There was sensitivity to uh, disrupting the oil markets um, and also exposure to some of the European countries, which is why they're weaving those sanctions sort of carefully there. What do you think the impact will be? If you hear of sanctions on petroleum products, I mean, Iran's oil industry has been sanctioned. Right. In the short run, there's there is upward pressure, including on LNG, uh, liquefied natural gas that the U.S. ships to Europe it, it, and Europe will need a lot more. But it's available. Uh, markets look forward so they can look at the five year time horizon and realize that there's a lot of energy available if it's mobilized. There are alternatives to the Russian dominance of the gas market, for example. Uh, And so whether those changes are made will be important. I think also important is Iran. How quickly is it going for nuclear weapons? Uh, Because it's a source of oil in the world as well. 
because those negotiations diplomatically are at a key decision point. And Russia's point. a full player of that. So how are you going to negotiate within that? We don't know. No, that is a, a good uh, thing to have on the horizon. Another reason for concern. Um, one of the uh, other things you have been working on is you met personally with the Ukrainian president just about a week ago, I believe, in Munich. That's right. So what are you doing to help the Ukrainian government? We're doing everything we can. So, And we're in a good position to do that right now. We have an instrument uh, that is able to move quickly in the next few days if it's, uh, if it's needed and, uh, and this, the circumstances go that way. I, I briefed our board on Thursday, uh, and it can be added to by, by uh, other countries that want to support countries that want to support Ukraine. And we also have uh, instruments moving that can help the refugee flow. You know, there, as we, as you heard er, 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 earlier, the big flow going right now to Poland. Uh, but there is also the possibilities. Ukraine has a lot of borders with Romania, with Moldova. We have programs in those countries that can be added to to, to support the uh, the re, the refugee flow. Um, so this this can work. There can be it. it depend, uh, the G7 is meeting finance minister on Tuesday morning. So I'll meet with them uh, and their and the central banks of the G7. And they can decide a lot of how much aid goes into into Ukraine. There, the IMF also has, uh, we're working with them closely to assess the needs and to think about instruments. It, is one of the decisions to be made what to do after the government falls? What will happen if this is a government in exile or this is an insurgency? Does help to the Ukrainian people continue? Uh, I'm not at all at that point. So we, we're not trying to look at hypotheticals or contingencies. It's that we are doing everything we can to support the people of Ukraine, the people of the region, and also thinking about this tragedy for the Russian people uh, that they that you, they didn't choose war. You know, the phrase in Russia is nyet vonyev, which is uh, no to war. Uh, and so it's not clear how this is all going to play out. One thing is, the you know, the arc of history is for Russia to be closer to Europe. Not, there's all this talk about China, but th that's not a natural alliance. It's it's more... Uh, I, so in, in 1989, I was on the border of China and Russia, and people were wondering, are they going to get together and work together? Right. No sign of that for the long run. Russia wants to use China with its the, the swift... They have a mirror system that mm -hmm. can connect payments with China. I'm not sure this will go very far. Big picture, what's the impact for the global economy? Do we see a spike in food prices and oil prices? Yes, big concern. And it was already at a point of fragility because inflation really hits the poor. Uh, and, and this is going to drive up energy and food. Uh, we, can, we can wait and see what Russia does, what China does. Ch right now, China is buying more from Russia and allowing the sanctions to be mm -hmm. to be eroded or, or circumvented a bit. We'll have to see where that goes as well. Okay. Um, a, a big thing yes. is the U.S. Yes. can supply a lot more if yes. it puts its mind to it. We'll watch for that. Okay. David Malpass, thank you for your time today. The war in Ukraine is being fought 5,000 miles away, but its impact is being felt here in the United States. Here's Mark Strassman. Stop Putin! Stop the war! Unease now invades America. 
from a thuggish land grab a half world away. You can't look away, it's deeply traumatizing. Especially for roughly one million Ukrainian Americans. How is it possible in the 21st century that you have an invasion of 200,000 men on an innocent country? Thousands of those innocents could become war refugees, a Ukrainian diaspora that could reach America, joining Ukrainian communities in New York and California. This region is really open uh, for the refugees. But all Americans feel something vaguely unsettling. Within this Russian blitzkrieg, potentially ominously, the rise of a second Cold War. In the U.S., the assault's other front line is economic, its impact on inflation, with the consumers already squeezed by rates at a 40-year high. We are going to see higher prices at the pumps, We are going to see higher prices, not quite as high as the pumps, in the grocery store. Our global economy faces a double whammy. The ripples from new sanctions on Russia and worsening supply disruptions. Russia is a leading producer of oil and gas and rare earth minerals. Titanium used in airplanes, palladium for semiconductors, like the chips that cars need. Ukraine, the breadbasket of Europe, grows wheat and other food crops. Europe's impact will be more direct, but we'll feel it. The sanctions will weigh on economic growth, and the sanctions could potentially also make companies feel very vulnerable at a time when everyone's nerves are frayed after the last two years. The Ukraine crisis also complicates a critical decision coming up for the Fed, whether to blunt inflation by raising interest rates. Get it wrong, and there's the specter of a new threat, a recession. Margaret? Our Mark Strassman reporting in Atlanta. And that's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, Wyoming Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, South Carolina Democratic Congressman James Clyburn, former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, and World Bank Group President David Malpass. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation's also on our digital network, CBSN, at 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern Time every Sunday. Hey, it's Matt Norlander with the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, and it is tournament time, people. So listen to the one podcast that will cover every upset, Cinderella, Bracket Buster Sleeper. We've got it all covered, every round, reaction shows, all the way up through the championship game in Glendale, Arizona. To find us, search Eye on College Basketball podcast wherever you get your podcasts.